Hello, Catherine here. If you're listening to my podcast because you're a fan of wintering, the good news is that my new book, Enchantment, is available now. It's a book about how we can find a way to reconnect with a world that's sometimes hard to live in and even to find magic there. It's available in all good bookshops and please support your local indie if you can. For more information, you can go to katherine-may.com forward slash enchantment. Happy reading. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Catherine May and welcome to the Wintering Sessions. Each week I talk to a different writer about the cold seasons in their life and how they survived. Today I'm delighted to introduce you to Ginny Reddy, author of Wonderland, A Search for Magic in the Landscape. Hi Ginny. Hi Catherine. It's lovely to meet you. I've been chatting to you on Twitter for a long, long time and it's so lovely to hear your voice. Well, it's lovely to hear your voice too, and um, <laughs> I'm really looking forward to the theme today. Yes, that wintry theme. And actually, um, I was I was just reading your biog on the flap of your of your lovely book, um, and it just struck me what an incredible citizen of the world you are. Can I just read that that biog because it's more more like a travelogue than a than a life history. Um, it says she was born in London to Indian parents who grew up in apartheid era South Africa, was raised in Montreal. Um, you studied geography, which it sounds to me like you didn't need to because you kind of are geography. Um, and then it sounds like you travelled all over the world. How does that influence you, just knowing all those different places? I think it gifts me with many pairs of eyes and mm. the ability to see things from the perspective of uh, of the other. Yeah, it sounds to me so impressively cosmopolitan I've always lived in England I feel very disappointing on this front 
but it must give you incredible perspective on the world as a whole (laughs) rather than just your small corner of it. Yeah, I think when an issue arises, I'm always considering or trying to uh, consider or be mindful of the global perspective. Mm. Um, And to remember that the way something looks to us is not necessarily how it looks to somebody else on the other side of the world. Yeah, and I think, you know, we're just in the middle of the the big Black Lives Matter protests and all of the news that's rolling out from that. And I think hopefully more of us are beginning to learn to to realise that that perspective is very unique to us. Um, Maybe we're not. Who knows? Perhaps that's optimistic. Um, So you're going to talk to us today about uh, a wintering period in your life that you write about in Wonderland, which you call the misery years. Um, That's quite the period of time, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, I, I just want to clarify that that I call those the misery years, but that's not what I call it in the book. Oh, um, yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> in the book, the chapter is called Walking Through Woods and Pain. Yes, that's right. Yeah, sorry. But then you, you go on in the paragraph to say that you, you tend to recall, refer to it as the misery years. And I, that really struck me because to have a, a phase in your life that you identify that strongly with is um is quite devastating. So it starts off with you temping which sounds like it wasn't much fun for you um so I'd been uh traveling abroad and I ran out of money and I ended up working in Hong Kong for two years and then I left Hong Kong and I left uh because I lost my uh well I didn't lose my job I left my job Mm. couldn't find another job and my boyfriend um dumped me and um and broke my heart oh no basically. so then I came back to London and tried to find a job and was really unsuccessful and so I ended up temping mm. and I don't know if you've ever tempted Catherine but I really I have to. it's hideous it's absolutely hideous and I was a terrible temp um, <laughs> I, I just didn't like uh taking orders basically (laughs) to do things so there were times when somebody would would ask me to do something and I would say I was going to the loo and I just run down the fire escape and then just keep running (laughs) and never go back and who could blame you my abiding memory of temping was um that in the window of the temping office there'd always be these really highly paid jobs that paid you know 15 quid an hour or something and you'd gaze outside and you think, yeah, I'd really like to earn 15 quid an hour. And you'd go in and everything would be £8.50 an hour. You know, it was really, they really oversold it. It was really, and it was always really grim, menial kind of work. Oh, yeah. And I always found it really painful going into a, a new office and being like the least valued person in the room. Mm, yes, absolutely. Particularly as I'd had a really good job before, right. before leaving. Um, I'd worked in book publishing. And I'd had, you know, in London, I'd had it before I'd gone off to travel. I'd had a job I really enjoyed. So it, it really felt like I'd come down in the world. Yeah, it's very it's a very, very dead end feeling. So when you weren't escaping down fire escapes, you were making other plans to escape and you ended up um, teaching English in Tbilisi. That's right. So after the temping, and the temping went on for about a year, um, you know, a really miserable year, I have to say. Which is, it's long enough, isn't it? <laughs> long enough. 
uh, even even more than a year, maybe you know a year and a half, two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was getting desperate, and I decided to do a TEFL course, right. uh, teaching English as a foreign language. And with my certificate, I applied to countries around the world, organizations around the world, and um, it was a school in Tbilisi that that would take me, that took me. So that sounds like a very difficult environment to be because you arrived in the aftermath of a civil war, is that right? Yes, that's right. I arrived in the dead of winter uh, and in the aftermath of a civil war and it was really bleak. Set the scene, go on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I remember arriving at the airport and I think it must have been, you know, 4am or something, very odd time. Mm. And there were these, you know, um, armed officers, um, army people. It looked wow. like something out of, you know, some Soviet era film. Uh, <laughs> oh. And uh, I remember this this man held up a sign and, and he took me in, in, into the car and we drove for hours uh, into or it felt like hours anyway, into the city. And I got taken to this hotel and. Uh, I remember walking down the corridor of this hotel and there were these refugees um, and they were in the hotel rooms and they were burning fires in their hotel rooms. Oh, my goodness. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, you know, what have I come to? What's going on? You know, what's the situation? And and then uh, I was given an apartment to live in and this apartment was incredible. It was had five rooms and chandeliers. but no heating and (laughs) in the middle of winter yeah so I'd have to go down the street and and try and communicate with this man who sells kerosene and I'd have to sort of buy the kerosene and then carry it back and and the apartment that I lived in in the block that I lived in these were Soviet era blocks and so they Mm. all looked identical so often I'd go to the wrong one um, and I'm not kidding. I really often did go to the wrong one, and I think, where, where am I? <laughs> and then, and then I have to lug this kerosene up to my apartment. And I think once I nearly set the uh, oh set my, my bedroom on fire. <laughs> it was, it was wow. pretty disastrous. The it's students were lovely of... though. Okay, so that that was a, a kind of upside. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I loved teaching grammar you know or any of that it's not the sexy part of English though it's not sexy no and but the students were really warm and very curious and I often felt like just doing away with the lesson and just saying ask me your ask me any questions you have fire away (laughs) so but it must have been quite scary on your own in that situation I mean you you say in your book there there were kind of bullet holes and things like that visible and oh yes yeah there was a lot of that and you know, I was one of the few um, uh, Asian people in, in the city or, 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 you know, one of the few Indian people in the city. Mm. And, um, you know, I did get stared at quite a bit. And that was disconcerting. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't speak the language. And Georgians often don't speak English or they didn't. Or the ones I met didn't. Mm. Um, and the alphabet is nothing like our alphabet. So I couldn't really make out anything, you know, the street signs or anything. I'm sure it's changed a lot now, but but then uh, it was challenging. So amid all of that, 
something really terrible happened back home? Yeah, so while I was out there, my father died. And mm. so I rushed back to London. And my mum was in the UK. She was in London. She and my father had moved over from Canada six months earlier. Um, oh, no. So they'd come back. They'd li- been living in, Cal- in Canada for years and years. They'd built a life there for themselves. And they returned to the UK uh, because they wanted to be with their grandchildren, my sister's, my sister's kids. Mm. Um, and so they hadn't really had time to reestablish themselves in Britain because they'd lived in Britain before moving to Canada. Right. Uh, so I moved in with my mum and so that was you know that was a bit of a bit of a wow. change and where my mum and I are very close but it was still a big change for me um, and, and you're grieving for your father and it, it sounds like you had nothing of your old life left really yeah I was grieving for my father and I had nothing of my old life left um, although I was ever so slightly relieved not to be teaching in Tbilisi. Um, <laughs> it was an escape route, I suppose. <laughs> strangely enough. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was really difficult. And I had to go back and tempt some more, which I hated some more. Yeah. I, I, I felt like I was in this kind of um, just, you know, Sisyphus rolling the stone up the hill mm. and then falling down again and, and then trying and trying to make things work and trying to apply for things and 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 not getting the jobs and just wondering, yeah. you know, what was going to happen to me. How old uh, were you by then? Um, well, I was in my early 30s. Mm. It's such a difficult period of your life, that, isn't it? Because there are loads of people by that point of your, of your age who are really well established and who are in I'm going to say proper jobs you know and you'll know what I mean I mean I I think if you followed a creative career you look at other people with um proper career structures you know an HR department you know promotions salaries bonuses pensions um and it can feel like you're treading water it certainly did to me I think yeah I I felt uh that these were meant to be the best years of my life Mm. And I was floundering. Yeah. And no matter what I tried, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't change things. And and that was really difficult. Very difficult. Um, Life just kind of keeps happening to you, basically. Yeah. And then I, I remember uh, two years after my father died and I woke up and it was the first time I felt that equilibrium had been restored Mm. and that day my sister died that's extraordinary it's like life kind of knocking you back down again when you're just standing up yeah and uh she died um of a heart attack oh my goodness like my father um very, very suddenly and you know, it's very difficult to talk about these things even now because I, um, it doesn't just affect me. It didn't just affect affect me. It affected her family too. Mm. Um, but suffice it to say, it was a very distressing period. Extraordinarily distressing when someone so young dies, and and when you know when you've got multiple griefs happening at once, that can be incredibly complicated as well. Yeah, and so. Um, 
I went off and I think actually this was maybe before my sister died, but I went off to India when I was grieving for my father. Uh, I went off to India for three months and I thought I was going to write a book. Mm. Though I didn't really have any great reason to write this book, you know, no compelling story. Um, I think what I was trying to do was uh, come to terms um, with his, with his death. Mm. And uh, so anyway, so I wrote this book and after my sister died, I tried to uh, get it published and nobody wanted the book. Right. Which is such a common experience with your first book, isn't it? It's a really common experience. But yeah, but I kind of felt, well, now what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Don't know what else to do. <laughs> And was that so was your ambition to be a writer at that point or was it was that just something you were you were kind of casting around for? Uh, I wanted to be a writer from the time I was born. Yeah. There was so, never a time when I didn't want to write a book. Right. Yeah. But you but the right one hadn't kind of landed in your, in your head yet. Yes. And yeah. I and, and and you know opportunities too. I, I wasn't always aware of how to make mm. these things happen I didn't necessarily know the right people it's true I'd worked in book publishing um but it that had been some time earlier yeah it doesn't always tell you everything about it I think if you just work on the inside too I I, I don't I meet quite a lot of people who work in publishing who want to write and it always surprises me that they sometimes know less about how to produce a book than people who've just kind of you know read the odd blog about it, it uh, the information that circulates inside publishing houses feels very different I think yeah I mean my job I loved my job um I wrote back jackets blurbs oh fantastic um, and I got to read the books too I I didn't just skim the books I was given the time to read the books right so I just rock up and crack open a book and a uh, sip coffee lovely job <laughs> that would be two days of the week and then one day I'd write the blurb and then crack open another book um, <laughs> so, but I I never you know never knew how one went about getting a book commissioned mm. yeah I and I don't think anyone still does now really I don't there, does, there never seems to be one fixed route to do it it's always very very kind of baffling and confusing yes yeah. so with your father and your sister gone, how did you begin to recover from that? That's such a, a monumental loss to start to process. Uh, well, I think time, just a mm. question of time. And um, at that point, you know, I was ready to try anything yeah. in terms of career and I remember when he was alive, my father had always said to me, you know, why don't you try to become a journalist? Because, you know, you like you like reading, you like writing. Mm. And I had always been very dismissive of jur journalism. And the thing is, I had actually had one piece published in The Times. Um, wow, that's a, that's a fantastic start. <laughs> <laughs> and I, what had happened is when I had been traveling before I had started working in Hong Kong, I'd been volunteering in India, in, in Calcutta, mm -hmm. and I was very moved by the experience. So when I was temping <laughs> and meant to be working, I'd be trying to write this article. 
we've all um, done that while we're temping don't worry <laughs> <laughs> and so I maybe wrote this this article to be 30 times and sent it off to all the newspapers right and um, and the times took it so tell me uh, about your volunteering I'm really fascinated by that what were you doing when you were volunteering um I was at Mother Teresa's as but, you do <laughs> for three months um and I, you know there were way more volunteers um than were needed mm. um but for me it was quite a transformative experience uh I'd, I'd never been in a situation like that before mm. you know growing up in Canada um I'd been accustomed to you know very middle class existence sure and here uh you know, the poverty was kind of in my face. And and I've, I've been to India and I've experienced India um, from a completely different perspective. You know, I've, I've stayed in, in, in very nice heritage hotels and yeah. uh, been around wealthy Indians too. So, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not unaware of the Indian middle class or, or, or the wealth that there is in India. But but this this was a different side to India. And, yeah. Um, it left a big impression on me. It must have done. And... So you come back with with this incredible experience behind you and this incredible perspective on I don't know it I, I mean I I I've travelled in India and I just felt like you see all of human life somehow it's it makes you realise that we see a kind of section of it in the UK um, and that everything is laid up it's almost like every time is there every kind of a person it, it and it, it affected me a huge amount and it I mean it made me feel incredibly privileged as, as I think it probably should um but you've obviously had that much closer contact with the the people who were in most need of help and support yeah but I but I also I also feel that as volunteers we we were we were given a lot of um we were given a lot of attention and uh mm. You know, in some ways, I feel like we got more out of it than the kids. Right, right. If I'm honest, you know, because we, we were going there, we, we were caring for them and mm. then we'd move on. But those kids weren't moving on. Right, right. You know, they'd get a little love from us and then we'd leave. And yeah. what would happen to them afterwards? Um, although at the time, I don't think I, I thought of it that way. It's, it's only through reflection, I guess. Mm. Um, but the other... The other thing um, about that time was that there were a lot of people, the volunteers were from all over the world. So it was just a really lovely thing to meet people from all over the world. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, enormous life experience. Yeah. And you, so you, you, you folded all of this into a career in travel writing, ultimately. Um, well, I wrote this, this one piece, like I said, um, and mm. then I did a journalism course and and from that grew the travel writing which has you know taken you to to the present day in lots of ways there's lots of lineage between yes, what you do yes. now then I, what I'd love to talk about now is um how because at Wonderland is about finding a kind of sense of the spiritual and of magic in the landscape um and I wondered if that connected somehow to your to those years when you were in drift and traveling the world and not quite finding the place where you felt at home 
is there a link there or am I am I overinterpreting to think that, that this is almost part of your your search for identity and belonging um so I genuinely was um searching for magic in the landscape I've <laughs> always been interested in magic and mysticism mm. um there are healers in my family and my mother's side so that's always been there um mm. I was also trying to find my voice yeah um, yeah. But I wouldn't necessarily link it to those those years. No, okay. I was I was overinterpreting. Sorry, I, I wondered if I was. I wondered if there was a kind of connection. But so let's talk a little bit about the about the the most recent book. I'm really interested in your finding spirituality in the British landscape in particular because I think it's become quite invisible in the everyday. The, the sort of spiritual significance of loads of different places. Would that be fair to say? Um, I think there's a spiritual dimension to everything if if we want to see the world in mm. in that light. I don't think it's necessarily um about a specific place. I think yeah. the spiritual is just another dimension mm. and it's all around us, kind of a layer that you can access, yes, yes, it's like twiddling the dial and finding yourself on 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 that station, mm. And the reason I was really attracted to your book in the first place is that I think my impression is that quite often we play down that aspect of life, particularly in nature writing. Actually, I think there's a there's a big kind of emphasis on science and rationality. Um, and I was just overjoyed to see you thinking about landscape and nature in a in a very different way, in a in in this you know way that was looking for the mystical and for the the kind of depth of experience uh well I you know as I said I'd been a travel writer and I'd had opportunities to meet people from indigenous cultures mm. and um in those encounters I was always struck by the way that for these people it was perfectly natural to enter into this reciprocal relationship with the forces of nature right um this deep communion in which it was perfectly possible to have a conversation and to experience a receiving of insight and wisdom mm. so while um uk nature writing has tended to be very you know as you say scientific and rational mm. um in the wider world among indigenous people there's nothing unusual about it that global perspective again really uh, helps yes <laughs> yeah yeah um, yeah. And I know lots of people here, too, who write about nature in this way. They're just not called nature writers. Right. Yeah. It's very interesting that we shut down those categories because um, I think loads of people get the spiritual from their time in nature. So what would your advice be for people now if they were going through a similar, similar phase to that phase in your life when everything seemed inaccessible and impossible what what do you draw from that time and what would you say to people now who are, are going through a similar thing? That life is cyclical. Mm. Um, that there will come a point when things will shift. Sometimes uh, it's about patience, isn't it? It's it's about patience and having faith and trusting and just bearing down, I guess, and just being with it. And it's incredibly difficult. Um, it but I always say to somebody, 
you know, if somebody is talking to me and telling me about this really difficult period they're going through in their lives, um, you know, I really empathize and, and I'll, I'll say, I, I promise you, I promise you it will change. Mm. But, you know, obviously it's not the same for everybody. No. And I, I find it, I mean, obviously my book was very much about that and about the life cycles and about acknowledging the cyclical nature of suffering and of periods of endurance. Um, and I think our tendency so often now is to try and cheer people up when they're in despair and to, to find that immediate thing that will fix them almost and make everything better. Um, and I think we've got to stop believing in those quick fixes and learn about the slow fixes that aren't they're not fun periods of your life they're not times that you're gonna feel great all the time but they are a crucial part of remaking yourself when something bad has happened I agree there there are no quick fixes when you're going through a difficult time believe me I tried them all yes yeah (laughs) yeah there's no shortcuts (laughs) there are no shortcuts and I think what what I found really hard at the time was was the the uh, the fear that somebody might think well she's not really trying very hard right to get out of it or to make things better and oh my god I was trying everything trying so hard yeah yeah Yeah, it's often the way and as soon as you stop trying so hard often that's when things drop into place weirdly or or when you know for me I I kind of resigned myself to the the idea that the best years of my life had happened already and this is how it was going to be from now on so I better just accept it and and I kind of when I I guess when I resigned myself to to this and I'd hit rock bottom I guess that's when things started to improve. That's so interesting and that that great enduring myth that your 20s are the peak of your entire adult existence um I was so glad to leave them behind i I I remember feeling very anxious, you know, on my sort of eve of my 30th birthday and thinking old age was going to hit me. Um, but actually, there was something about not being young anymore that made everything a bit easier. And then hitting 40 made it easier again. And I am kind of looking forward to 50 now. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I I loved I have to say I love my 20s, but um, my 30s were difficult. <laughs> yeah. I think everyone's 30s are quite difficult, actually. I, I can't think of anybody who didn't have challenges in them. Um, but yeah, I think I like them better than my 20s. I felt a little bit more like I knew who I was by then. I, I just didn't know who the hell I was in my 20s right. and certainly not in my okay. teens. OK, one final question, because I can't resist asking. Where's your favourite place to retreat to when you're in need of that natural solace? OK, so I, I'd love to be by the coast right now. Uh, I love being by the coast, quiet what, bits of the coast where there's nobody bit, else what around. What bits of coast are your favourites? I, I quite like the North Shore and the beaches um, on Holy Island. Oh, it's beautiful uh, up there. A lot of people don't go to that side of the island. They tend to stick to the south side of the island mm. for day trippers. Um, so I, I think I, I quite like that because um, I've stayed a few times and when I wake up in the morning before the causeway opens... I pretty much have this coastal walk to myself. And, and, I like that. and I'm thinking of Iona. I like Iona. Um, mm. Very peaceful. But really any bit of coast will do where there are no people. Yeah. No people. And I like uh, my bed. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all? 
bed in a book. Yeah, that's nice. And maybe a cup of tea. A cup of tea. And do you know, I've never said this before, but I am a big fan of ASMR. Ah, are you? Yes. What are your favourite bits? I, I like the, um, I like watching the people with the hairbrushes. <laughs> I actually got, see, you know what I'm talking about. I do. No, I totally know. Do you want to, do you want to explain what it is for anyone who hasn't come across the joys of ASMR? Um, autonomic sensory meridian response. Oh, that's really good. I couldn't have. I couldn't have remembered. I'm really glad you did. I'd have had to have looked it up and done like a little disclaimer at the end. <laughs> or I think brain orgasms, as some people call them. And some people call it brain tingles as well. Brain tingles. Um, yeah. Basically that nice soothing feeling you get when you maybe you watch somebody making pottery or painting or um, just doing nice, for me, nice healing rituals does it. Right. Um, I found that really soothing. Do you I watch really it on YouTube or is that something you'd do in person? Um, well, I didn't know you could do it in person. I um, presume you can somewhere. I mean, I, I wouldn't know where, but um, <laughs> it must happen, right? Tell me. <laughs> uh, YouTube. I, I'm more your basic, you know, ASMR geek. I just love that kind of um, watching people run their hands over velvet and flip sequins over and the and the, the tines of a comb going ding, 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 it's often about very little delicate things isn't it sound yeah, deliberate delicate uh, mm-hmm. motions mm. and the way that some people use their hands is just so intensely beautiful some people just have got very elegant ways with handling objects and that can be enough for me that can give me huge pleasure yes the, the way objects are picked up and placed down yes yeah. it sounds ridiculous oh, to voice it but there is I know <laughs> absolute pleasure in watching it <laughs> Wow, that is such a lovely example of a place you can retreat, though. I wouldn't have ever thought of that. That's just wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been amazing to talk to you. And congratulations on your Wainwright long listing. We're in there together, but you are the first person of colour on their list, aren't you? So that is that's a huge achievement. Well done. Well, thank you for having me. And congratulations on your long listing, Catherine. I'd love to say I'm the first autistic person on the list, but I'm sharing it with somebody else. So, you know, honestly, (laughs) we're like buses. (laughs) Well, it certainly is more diverse this year. Yeah. And it needs to be. I I sometimes really cringe a bit when people call me a nature writer because I worry about the intense whiteness and middle classness of nature writing. I'm working class. I mean, I'm probably not anymore. I don't think you can be a writer and really call yourself working class. But um, I... I can get very uncomfortable and resistant about that label and I and the answer to that is to open it up right it's not it's not for me to not write about nature it's for the whole genre to open up to loads of different people and different voices and different perspectives yes makes it so much more interesting Mm. well thank you so much I will put all of your links in the show notes and a link to your lovely book Wonderland a search for magic in the landscape and I'm sure everyone will want to check you out thank you very much Catherine (laughs) thanks Ginny And that's all for this week. Huge thanks to my guest, Ginny Reddy. And if you enjoyed the podcast, please do tell your friends, like, subscribe, give it some stars, whatever it is you can do on your particular platform. It really helps to get us off the ground. I'll be back next week to meet another writer who's wintered.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.